Welcome to Innovational Correctness, a podcast all about innovation and transformation, hosted by David Luna, author, keynote speaker, and founder of Gamma Digital and Beyond. David and his guests discuss real-world practical advice on how to best harness the creativity of your employees and go from idea to product, giving you unique perspectives and insights into their success, all while separating hype from reality and replacing bullshit bingo with common sense. Let's jump right into the show. Welcome to another episode of the Innovational Correctness Podcast. So in today's episode, I will explain why Uber is not disruptive and explain why almost everyone around you is probably misusing the term disruption and has been probably misapplying it for years. Then we'll go through some of the different innovation types along with some prominent examples for each of them. And we'll look at what actual disruption looks like, how it takes place by citing an example from the steel industry and show you how integrated steel mills dominating the steel industry for decades were completely blindsided and overrun by initially inconspicuous technology. Then I'll show you how to determine if an idea or even a startup has any disruptive potential at all. Why Uber is not disrupting the cab industry, despite what the majority believes, and what you should focus on instead so that your idea or company will increase its chances to become a disruptor themselves. So without further ado, let's get cracking. So before I can explain in detail why Uber is not disruptive, we need to first have a clear understanding what disruption actually means. If you think you already know, well then let me ask you the following question. Would you consider the first automobile to be a disruptive technology? Now, even though the first automobile was revolutionary, it did not affect existing markets. Remember, the first automobile in the late 19th century were expensive luxury items, of which very few were actually sold. The lower price affordable Ford Model T was without a doubt disruptive as it overtook and displaced an existing market, horse-drawn carriages to be exact. Now, if your answer was no, it seems you already have a good understanding of what the definition that the godfather of innovation, Clayton Christensen, came up with. If your answer was no, then the following episode should actually prove to be very insightful, and you'll have a much better grasp of what the concept of disruption really means than 90% of the people that use the term in daily business. So the term was first coined and defined by Clayton Christensen, famous for his seminal book called The Innovator's Dilemma, published way back in 1979. Today's concept of disruptive innovation is present in in our everyday language of innovation. But ironically, disruption theory has become a victim of its own success. So despite its broad usage, the core concepts have been widely misunderstood and its basic principles have been misapplied. I'm always shocked by how loosely the term is tossed around or how people roll their eyes at the mere mention of disruption. This is in part due to sloppy references from writers or journalists. And to make matters worse, it seems that they haven't read a serious book or article on the subject. Oftentimes, startups or even consultants use the term so vaguely to invoke the concept and support or whatever it is they wish to sell or convey, even though their product and service just simplifies an existing technology, not displaces it. So by misunderstanding this one critical term, we lose much of the understanding and power of the innovator's dilemma. This is similar to the German companies using the term digital transformation. Everyone uses it, almost nobody can give you an accurate definition, and even if they did, they would 
come to realize and understand that digital transformation does not solve the problem of today's company in a VUCA world. Furthermore, if we use disruption or disruptive innovation to describe any situation in which an industry is shaken up or where incumbents fall, well, the usage would be much too broad for obvious reasons. Applying the concept correctly matters and is actually critical in order to realize its benefits. A small competitor that steals smart small parts of your market share can likely be ignored unless they're on a disruptive path, in which case it could be a very fatal threat to your company. However, both of these challenges need to be addressed fundamentally different. The concept of disruptive innovation is used to describe technology that uproots and eventually replaces an existing technology. Think of video streaming eventually replacing or displacing video rentals. Now, let's make the distinction between sustaining, breakthrough, and disruptive innovation. So in order to really correctly identify which innovation types we're dealing with, we need to talk about these three types of innovation. These will also be the definitions that I will use throughout this episode to stay consistent as not to lose the power of the concept. So sustaining or incremental innovation is essentially the continuous technological improvement to an existing product, service, or process within the context of your existing business model. So essentially the goal is to do what you already do, but much better. You know, think of three-bladed razor becoming a five-bladed one. Generally, the lion's share of innovation that happens in companies falls into this category. Breakthrough innovation, or also called radical innovation, is a change to an existing product, service, or process that has a significant impact on the business, but still fits within the company's business model. Think of the Motorola Razor phone. Even though it was a it pushed the boundaries of design and was a huge runaway success for Motorola. This sometimes allows company to essentially leapfrog ahead of the competition, but the innovation stays within the core offering. Finally, disruptive innovation is a new product, service, or process that either creates a new market or enters at the bottom or low end of the market and is initially considered inferior to the existing offering as it moves up and displaces established incumbents. Again, think of streaming services such as Spotify or Netflix displacing the compact disc. The main reason disruption causes so much confusion is that it sounds like a major upset, which seems to suggest that the technological cause should be major as well. This in turn leads many to falsely believe that disruptive innovation coincides with technical radical innovation, so people end up confusing disruptive with radical innovation. The opposite of disruptive is sustaining. A disruptive innovation may or may not represent a radical innovation. Also, a radical breakthrough may or may not be disruptive, while an incremental innovation can be extremely disruptive. In fact, most documented cases of disruption originated from an incremental change that was well within the technical capabilities of the incumbent. Now, on the flip side, companies also have taken huge risks and engineered extremely complex new innovations that were hugely successful.
successful with their existing mainstream customers, but are considered sustaining. You know, think of the Boeing 787. Now, to better understand what actual disruption looks like and how it takes place, let's look at a prominent example from the steel industry, an industry I've had the pleasure of working with extensively as I've helped companies such as Klockner Metals define their strategy and develop the ways to disrupt their own industry. And what we'll do is go through an example examining the developments in the steel industry from the years 1965 to the 1990s. Now, let's enter the integrated steel mills. Now, historically, high-quality steel production was regarded as the domain of incumbents, the integrated steel plants, and were unrivaled in terms of quality and production capability and capacity. Their large market share and high added value guaranteed success. But in the mid-1960s, mini-mill steelmaking started to become commercially viable. Mini-mills pioneered by Nucor employed widely available technology and equipment using electric arc furnaces to melt scrap steel as opposed to blast furnaces to melt iron, and then roll these into end products such as bars, rods, beams, and sheets. And by the way, integrated steel mills get their name from the integrated process of transforming iron ore, coal, and limestone into final steel shapes, for instance, beams. And even though the integrated mills and mini mills look very similar, scale is essentially the only differentiating fact. Mini mills use furnaces that are roughly 20 meters in diameter and 10 meters high, which is where they get their name from. So let's take an example. It costs approximately 8 billion US dollars, uh, and this is a little outdated number, to build a competitive integrated steel mill requiring the output to be much greater than that of mini mills. But in contrast, mini mills can be built for much less and can produce steel at a fraction, often less than a tenth to be exact, of that of an integrated mill, making mini mill steel milking a highly disruptive technology. Now you would think, wait a minute, why didn't every integrated steel company adopt this low-cost mini mill technology, especially since steel is a commodity? Yet not a single integrated steel company had invested in a mini mill even after the technology occupied nearly half of North American steel production in the 2000s. Now, let's look at how disruption finds its next lunch. Disruptive innovation usually starts out with a low-quality product, let's take rebar for example, in a low-volume and or low-margin segment of a much larger and more mature market. The customers of this lower segment demand products or product attributes that mainstream customers like sheet metal customers do not or are not willing to give up performance for. Or simply put, the disruptive innovation is not good enough for mainstream customers. More so, mainstream customers straight out reject the disruptive innovation, holding the incumbent hostage of its own success. And this is an important point to keep in mind. Now, because mini mill technology was inferior in the beginning, it could not provide all the higher quality steel pro products as could the integrated steel mills. In this stage, new technology, and when I'm referring to technology, this also includes products and services as well. These new technologies can either be inefficient or seem more expensive due to the fact that these technologies have not yet scaled or seem cheaper because they simply do less. Makes sense, right? And just a, a side note, 
business model disruption has similar patterns in respect to margin channels, partners, revenue, etc. So this applies to business models as well. Now, the reaction from the incumbents also follows a very predictable pattern. It is one generally of one of denial, similar to the five stages of grief. Uh, and furthermore, the incumbent is forced to ignore the new technology as it is often a market segment of low interest. Remember, it's generally one of low volume, low margin, and does not really meet the growth requirements dictated by a much larger company size. And as such, the integrated steel mills exited the rebar market. <laughs> Remember, it, it, it only accounted for a very low volume, about 4% of the total market in tons, and left it for the mini mills to feast on, essentially. So as time went on, the mini mills occupied the rebar segment and started growing rapidly, solving their initial quality problems while retaining their cost advantage. Now, this is normally where the disruptor goes through a rapid learning curve, solving further quality and performance issues and suddenly starts threatening the incumbent in its main markets. So this would be something like angle, bars, or rods. The integrated steel mills then scramble to put together a response, but in almost always this fails, SO in this case, because the disruptor's head start and culture that is much more adaptable or agile, you would say today, and then retreats into a higher end market. So that would be something like structural steel. Ultimately, the market begins to demand the replacement of the incumbent's technology with the new technology. And at this point, the whole market begins to see the potential and capabilities of the new technology, essentially forcing the incumbent to move further up market to, say, sheet steel and into a dead end with no market left to go. And it's important to iterate, disruption has little to do with technology or digital business models per se. That's why companies should not focus on the digital part of digital transformation or the digital transformation movement as they tend to do in Germany. But unfortunately, this point is lost on most companies. So how do you determine if an idea or startup has any disruptive potential? Well, we can do the following. We can do ask ourselves three questions to determine whether your idea or a particular startup has any disruptive potential or when trying to change a sustaining innovation into a disruptive idea for greater growth potential. The first question is, does it have low end disruption potential? Can you identify customers at the low end of the market who would be willing to purchase a product with less but good enough performance or features if they could buy it for cheaper for a cheaper price? And is there a business model where you can earn significance, significant profits at lower prices in order to acquire business over for overserved customer at the low end? And the second question pertains to does it have new market disruption potential? So are there potential customers, non-consumers at the moment, who have not had the money, equipment, or skill to do a certain task themselves and have therefore gone without it altogether or have needed to hire someone with expertise to do it for them? So do these customers need to visit a central location physically or virtually in order to use the product or service? And then finally, you should ask yourself, does it disrupt at all? Is your idea disruptive to all relevant incumbents? If your idea appears to be sustaining a sustaining innovation to one or more players, well, the chances will be stacked against you and the entrant, so often you, will be unlikely to win that battle. Now, the examples for disruptive innovation are almost endless from hydraulic shovels disrupting cable winch shovels in the early 20th centuries, from PCs disrupting mainframe computers, online streaming disrupting retail movie rentals, inkjet printers disrupting laser printers, or even
even Nintendo Wii disrupting the PlayStation and Xbox. There are plenty. Now, let's go back to the initial question and the title of this episode. Why is Uber not disrupting the cab industry? Well, without a question, Uber is certainly transforming the taxi business, but is it really disrupting the industry? And the simple answer is no. Now, I'm sure you're not going to let me off the hook that easy, but I'll explain. Just because a company or a startup is highly successful doesn't automatically make it disruptive, despite how many people define it as such. Wanting something to be a certain way does not make it so. Otherwise, I would be a filthy rich millionaire on a private island. But if you're still not convinced, let's go through some of the previous questions on how to determine if an idea or startup has disruptive potential one by one and answering them for the case of Uber. Question one and two pertain to low-end or new market disruption. As I've already outlined and explained, disruption originates from two types of market, either low-end or new market. So the low-end disruption can take place because incumbents typically try to provide their most profitable and demanding customers with improvements to their products and services essentially paying less attention to less demanding customers and thus moving up market. Makes sense, right? So the previous mini mill example is an excellent example for low-end disruption. Mini mills, the disruptor, provided low-end customers with good enough products, think of rebars, and then over time slowly, slowly moved up market. In the case of new market disruption, disruptors create markets where none existed before, or simply put, they turn non-consumers into consumers by providing and simply simplifying technology that new customers can use. A good example of this was a personal computer that made it affordable and very simple to make calculations that were previously reserved for mainframe computers. Now, Uber did not start off from either low-end or a new market. It would be very, very difficult for anyone to claim that Uber exploited a low-end opportunity in the market. If that were the case, well, then that would have meant that cab providers were over-serving their customers by making cabs as an example, too accessible, too easy to use, or providing too many cabs. If anything, I would actually argue that Uber rides are more convenient and much more cleanly than your average cab. Now, your mileage may, wear, may vary. Also, Uber did not serve customers that found existing alternatives too expensive or too inconvenient, so they took public transport or drove themselves instead. Remember, Uber initially launched, launched its service in San Francisco, a, a well-served market, and they typically cost 50% or more than a cab did, and that didn't even include surge pricing. Furthermore, Uber's customers were primarily people who already hired rides. Now, Uber Select, and that's currently a small part of Uber's, Uber's overall revenue is an exception because the limousine or black car market, as they call it, business is a far more likely to be on a disruptive path and only time will tell if that's the case. Uber Select essentially provides less expensive, a less expensive alternative to a traditional limousine. And as such, Uber's offering appeals to the low end of the limousine market because customers are willing to sacrifice convenience, so the lack of advanced reservations, for savings. Now, what Uber has been doing, though, is increasing the overall overall demand, something that's quite common when someone develops a much better or cheaper solution to address a general customer need. Disruptors, on the other hand, start with either low-end or unserved consumers and then move up market to satisfy the mainstream customers. But Uber has followed the exact opposite trajectory, growing its position in the mainstream market first and then moving to overlooked segments. So most of Uber's strategy is one of sustaining innovation. In addition, 
Uber has actually also forced a state-sponsored monopoly to compete and become more customer-focused and convenient. This is pretty evident by the fact that my taxi developed its own cab-hailing app after Uber continued to gain traction in European countries. And this is a typical defensive strategy when incumbents are faced with threats from sustaining innovations. They are highly motivated to respond as opposed to flee when confronted with disruptive innovation. So in such cases, they deploy competitive of technologies such as healing apps from my taxi. Unfortunately, now that the cab business finally has real competition, they're once again trying to hide behind government regulation, which will lead to less competition and innovation overall, well, hurting all players involved in the long run. Now, one thing that should be noted, however, is the fact that Uber's performance can be considered an outlier due to the fact that cab markets around the world are highly regulated in terms of pricing and entry barriers. Cab providers rarely had to innovate. So this could, at least in part, explain why Uber has been so successful. So what do we learn from this episode? Let's put this all together. Over the past few years, you've probably heard countless keynote speakers cite Uber as a prime example for disruption. Despite what others might want to believe, Uber is not disrupting the taxi business. Even most innovation or business consultants don't even understand that most disruption originates from incremental innovation. And what's worse, they should know better as they tend to throw around the term like there's no tomorrow and get paid for it. Often these people use the term so loosely so that they can support whatever it is they are trying to sell or convey. Most of the time their product or service merely just improves or simplifies an existing technology. But if these people are still insistent on Uber being disruptive, then they need to look for another definition that makes Uber fit within that disruption category, and it needs to be consistent. So by now, you should also be able to easily understand why Tesla is also not disrupting their respective industry, their automotive industry. Now, even though many assume that high-end electrical vehicles or EVs, such as Tesla Model S, are disruptive, the disruptive innovation theory dictates a different underdog, low-speed electrical vehicles. Now, they are seemingly disadvantaged such as low speed and limited driving range are actually classical hallmarks of disruption. They compete on metrics of performance such as simplicity, convenience, and affordability that appeal to non-consumer, essentially further democratizing the car and enabling more people who previously could not afford a car to enjoy its benefit. Now, low speed EVs are particularly successful in China where they are targeting non-consumers who just can't afford a traditional car and are thus happy to embrace a low-end alternative. But for low-speed EVs to be truly disruptive, they will need to migrate to higher performance and higher profit margin markets. Let's take another example. So the internet was not a disruptive technology for Dell, but instead a sustaining innovation. Dell's business model was already disruptive before they embraced the internet as a new distribution and communication channel. Remember, selling PCs over the phone was very disruptive at the time as it cut out the middlemen, the retailers. This is also called disintermediation if you want to be uh, if you want to use jargon. However, for Compact, HP and IBM, the internet would have had huge disruptive impact. Now, the important thing to remember here is what might constitute disruption in for one company might be a sustaining innovation or have a sustaining impact on another. And when you're the incumbent, it's of utmost importance to decide carefully what you view 
as disruptive or not. Using a vague definition or calling everything disruptive, well, certainly won't help and it could be your last move. And yeah, sure, it's to the benefit of every competitor to claim that they are disrupting your industry. Creating chaos causes untold confusion, especially in large corporations. Disruption has paralyzing effects on industry leaders when attacked from below. It's such an effective strategy because it's much more easier to beat incumbents when they are motivated to flee rather than fight. They're also motivated to go up market, almost never interested in defending low-end or new markets that the disruptor finds so attractive. That's why you should never target an incumbent with a sustaining solution, because they have the resources, the customer base, and the motivation to fight any threat that is coming from the new competitor. Almost always will an established competitor win if they are threatened with a sustaining technology, simply by doing more of what they're really good at, satisfying their customers with incremental improvements. Established players also frequently underestimate the rate of technological progress that typically improves faster than their customers can keep up with. Even if they build a car that drives faster than that of the competition, it won't matter to the customer if they're in heavy traffic. Yeah, makes sense, right? So what should you do instead? Well, customers or people and companies for that matter, hire products or services to get a specific job done. And consequently, you should segment your customer based on the jobs they are trying to get done by understanding the circumstances and the context of these customers. Customers that lack the money or the skill to finish a job, well, they'll be pleased with a simple, inexpensive solution that has been previously beyond their reach. They will compare your disruptive product to having nothing at all and be completely delighted to purchase it, even though it may not be as good as other products available at a much higher price. As a result, the barriers to entry required to satisfy these new market customers or non-consumers are quite low. So when a technology that enables the dis disruption is quite complex, then you need to create it in a way that makes the purchasing process and the use of the product simple, convenient, or even foolproof. And this foolproof aspect is what creates growth by enabling your potential customers with less money and skill to begin consuming the product. So that was the end of this episode. I know this is a little bit shorter than you're used to, but if you found this episode interesting and would like to go down the rabbit hole with disruption, then be sure to read uh, my comprehensive disruption guide, Why Companies Need to Eat Their Children, which I've linked in the show notes as well. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and podcast, there's plenty more where that came from. Just head to our website, gammabeyond.com or follow us on LinkedIn. There you will also find long form articles, videos, and other podcast episodes about innovation and transformation. And if I could ask you for one small favor, it would be this. Please don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Overcast, or the podcast app of your choice. It really helps us out and encourages more people to find our podcast. Last but not least, if you have any suggestions for further episodes, topics, or guests that we should invite in our podcast, or just have feedback, let us know by emailing us at info at gammabeyond.com. I've been your host, David Luna. Until next time.